Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... I'm more optimistic about AI because I think a lot of what it's doing, or what it has potential to do, is give millions of people the skills that only thousands have today. Avi Goldfarb on artificial intelligence and the economy of the future. Hey, listeners, welcome to another bonus episode of The New Bazaar. Today's guest is economist Avi Goldfarb. Avi is the co-author of a new book, along with his fellow economists Ajay Agrawal and Josh Gans, called Power and Prediction, The Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence. And that is also the theme of today's episode. Avi and I cover a lot of fascinating ground in this chat about AI, how to define it, how to think about AI and what it can do the promise, and of course, some of the perils of AI more generally. But all throughout the chat, what we're really discussing is the fundamental question that I think circulates through a lot of our minds whenever we think about AI, and it's this. Is AI about to make the economy and the world a lot weirder, a lot different from how it is now? And if so, just how far along that path to weirdness are we already? Without further ado, here is my chat with Avi Goldfarb. Avi Goldfarb, welcome to the New Bazaar. Great to be here. Thank you. Here's where I want to start. There's a lot of definitions of artificial intelligence that, if I'm being honest, I don't find very helpful. They tend to be abstract. They use a lot of weird jargon. You and your co-authors define artificial intelligence as a prediction technology. What do you mean by that? What we mean is what today's artificial intelligence is particularly good at is using information you have to fill in information you don't have. So when we're talking about prediction, we mean the process of filling in missing information. That is what you learn in an undergraduate statistics class. And today's artificial intelligence is an incredibly advanced form of computational statistics. When you call it computational stats, it's a little less exciting than when you call it AI. (laughs) But we believe that computational stats is still transformative, and there's a reason why it's being called AI. Can you give maybe one or two examples of how it actually works? In medical diagnosis, there might be underlying data on both scans and symptoms, and whatever the doctor said was the diagnosis or what might be ground truth, say, from pathology. And what these machines will do is they'll take all that data, both those inputs, what we call the images and the symptoms, And the outputs, what I mean by that is the actual diagnosis, what the doctor said was wrong with the patient. They'll use thousands, if not millions of examples from the past. And then there's new symptoms present. A patient comes along and we don't know the diagnosis. And they'll use those past diagnoses along with those symptoms to figure out what the the new thing is. That occurs all over the place, which is we have lots and lots of data. And we're trying to, we have something new come along where there's a missing piece and we're trying to fill in the missing piece. It happens with translation too. So we have thousands, if not millions of documents again of say English to French or French to English. And then a new English language document comes along and we use that past data to predict what the right French language would look like. Again, using tons of past information to fill in information that might be missing when a, a new situation presents itself. There's a really funny line near the beginning of your book, and I just want to share it with our listeners and then get your thoughts on it, where you write, AI attracts the attention of philosophers, movie makers, futurists, doomsayers, and a raft of others who can enliven your dinner party conversation. We economists play the opposite role, unquote, (laughs) which I thought was pretty funny and also kind of in line with the stereotype about economists. (laughs) <laughs> right, making everything boring and simple. What What is that opposite role that you're referring to there? A lot of the excitement around AI comes from what we see in science fiction. We see these machines that can do just about everything we humans can do. They might be friendly, like in the Jetsons, where they can do everything we can do, but they, they listen to us. Or they might be unfriendly, like much of the rest of science fiction, the Terminator, the Matrix. Terminator 2, Ultra, yeah, is the yeah. one everybody brings to mind, yeah. Right, where they can do just about everything we can do, maybe even more, and they don't listen to us. 
that idea of thinking about what it means for an artificial general intelligence to exist is, is really fun and really interesting. And, you know, philosophically, I do believe it's important. But our economist role is to say that's not the technology we have today, is to take a step back and say, why are we talking about artificial intelligence in 2022? And we weren't talking about it so much in 2002. This has nothing to do with an AGI. This has nothing to do with a machine that could do just about everything we humans do. AGI, that's artificial so general, general intelligence, yes. right? Yes, yeah. exactly. And to define that, what oh, is that exactly? A machine that can do just about everything we can do. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Fair enough. So this has to do with a very particular narrow branch of AI, a particular branch of computer science, prediction technology that's gotten much better. It turns out once you have better predictions, there's other branches of computer science that become more powerful, like robotics. Because if you can, you can use prediction to figure out how to pick things up and how robots should move. But the real advances over the past decade or more have been in prediction technology. I want to ask about another example that you give early in your book, your book Power and Prediction, that I think does an especially good job of explaining AI as a prediction technology. And that's the company Verifin which is this company that uses AI to help financial institutions catch fraud. Uh, can you just tell us how it does that? There's a lot of temptation by many people around the world to commit fraudulent transactions in financial services. There's so much money flowing from one place to another, and there are so many transactions that people have this hope that they can, they can slip in and have a, a fraudulent transaction. There's different kinds of fraud. There's credit card fraud where somebody's using a credit card that's not theirs. There's a wire transfer fraud where somebody's sending money or taking money. There's investment fraud where people are either saying they're investing in something without the actual funds or say they have a product that people should invest in and it's not really a product. In many of those cases, the fraud can be catastrophic to people on the other side of the transaction. And so what prediction technology is doing is predicting which of those particular transactions are fraud. And so what Verifin does is in financial transactions, each time a financial transaction comes in, it provides a prediction of the likelihood that that financial transaction is real or it's fraud. And that's incredibly useful to, to banks and to stock markets around the world to say, hey, is this a transaction that I can trust? Because trust is fundamental to the way uh, the financial system works. And if not, then it can reject the transaction and save the people on the other side from dealing with, with fraud. But it does that by looking at data about, I don't know, millions of previous transactions and then trying to find like the commonalities in those transactions that point to fraud. And so by doing that and by doing it at a scale that was previously impossible, it can then identify which current transactions it's looking at share some of those earlier properties. Is that is that basically how it works? That's exactly it. Uh, okay. you know, full marks. Nothing to add. Yeah. And, and so, you know, when we look at something like that, right, it gives you kind of a sense of how AI can work. And it gives you a sense of what you described as computational statistics. It's just that the ability to do that didn't exist, what, five, ten years ago? Maybe even... Maybe even not that long ago. Is that right? Uh, that's right. The way we would have done that, say, 20 years ago, would have been with you know some rules of thumb about which transactions we're going to trust and which ones we aren't. Okay. The way we would have done it 40 years ago would have been humans actually looking up each transaction one at a time to decide whether they should allow it or not. And now, you know, in the past five years, but especially now, we're seeing using data from millions and millions of these past financial transactions to predict whether a new one is fraudulent or not. There's a lot of current excitement over other kinds of AI and that are in the news. And I want to just describe some of them and maybe get your general thoughts on what they signify. So one has been the GPT-3 chatbot from an organization called OpenAI. And for listeners who haven't tried it, this is where you essentially you know, just type into a box questions or instructions for this AI machine to respond with what is often a very well-written full-length essay of two or 300 words. And it's incredible how quickly the response is, and it's incredible how much it resembles what a human might respond with. So that's something that a lot of people have been playing with in the last couple of months. And what's interesting to me about GPT-3 is not its flaws, because a lot of people look at it and they say, well, you know, 
this is going to be a problem. We won't know if students are writing their own essays or if they're going to be written by this thing. Or they'll say, well, we we can still employ like our creativity and how we use the responses that are given. Or in some cases, the responses are just wrong. To which my response has been, well, yeah, but this came out of nowhere and it surprised everybody. And what makes you think it won't just keep getting better and better, right? I mean, they're already working on the next version of this. I think they already started it before they even released this one to the public. So I'm just kind of curious to know what your thoughts are on the what I guess you might call the hysteria over GPT-3 before we get into some of the ideas in your book. I am incredibly excited about GPT-3. I was blown away by how good the technology is. My 13-year-old was interested in recipes and asked for a recipe, there brownies and peanut butter and jelly, and very clear, well-structured recipe that we could go ahead and, and actually build. Uh, my seven-year-old was trying to think through what he was going to get for his birthday and typed in a conversation with GPT-3, and we ended up with a pretty good birthday present idea. And, you know, my my 16-year-old was more tempted to say things like, well, you know, I have an essay for, for English. Uh, what if we do this and this? And it was a very clean five-paragraph essay. She assures me she didn't use uh, that, you know, <laughs> that did amazing work. So... And then, you know, it can also write code in a clean way. So give me some practice code for whatever you might want to write. And so it's an incredible tool for creating prose and creating text. So I think it's it's amazing. Now, when we have incredible new tools, we always have people who point out all the things that we used to do that may no longer be able to be done in the same way. So, you know, I've already changed the way I'm writing my take-home exam for next term because the old way to write a take-home exam isn't going to work. I've already for your students for you my mean, students for the classes yeah, you for teach? the classes I teach yeah. absolutely. There are other changes coming to people who sort of write basic code. A lot of those skills can be done by the machine, and so there are reasons to fear for aspects of our existing systems that are going to break, and people whose current jobs are going to have to change. So why am I so excited? Then I think this is going to upskill millions and millions of people across the population. Most people aren't that good at writing. Some people are good and, you know, some of us make a living out of it. But for most people, writing is a real barrier. And for many people, writing is a real barrier to them reaching their economic potential. And so I think a tool that allows you to say, well, write a customer service email that allows me to reach out to a potential customer and describe what I'm going to do. That's going to be amazing for people in skilled trades, for example, who may not be the best with language. Uh, and so they're marketing struggles, but they're actually good at the the product they deliver. And so I think this this technology has the potential to superpower many people by making writing, in particular, no longer a barrier to becoming part of the overall to to reaching their economic potential. Making that happen is hard. So I don't want to shortchange the you know the pain that we have in building out new systems. But if and when it happens, and I think it's when more than if. It's going to be an incredible boon for millions of people around the world. It's also fun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I I keep trying to stump it with like philosophical questions. I asked it, why is there something rather than nothing? And it gave me a nice response about the essential unknowability of that <laughs> question, right? Of the answer to that question. So it's just something to to have fun with and whose consequences I think everybody's still trying to figure out. But there's other examples too Things like Dolly, which is another one of these AIs where you just type in a few lines of text and say, hey, I want to see an image that combines the following characteristics or whatever, and it'll give you something back that's really quite impressive and artistic and interesting. Um, Image recognition is something that, especially in the last 10 years, as you write in your book, has gotten a lot better, where you can essentially show a picture of something to an artificial intelligence machine and it can recognize all the things in the picture and it has some interesting possible uses but what i'm also interested in is how disappointed some people are that things haven't moved faster than they have so for example image recognition is something that's used in self-driving cars and i think a lot of people were sort of hopeful that by now or within five or ten years or something there'd be self-driving cars everywhere that they would be safer than having human drivers and so forth and that hasn't really happened and that leads us to a concept in your book which is that we are in what you refer to as the between times for artificial intelligence can you kind of take us through what that phrase means 
we can see that this technology is incredibly exciting. Image recognition, writing text, creating new images. The potential of prediction technology is, is clear to those of us who are paying attention. And yet, when we look at the data about the fraction of companies that are using AI, and even among those that are using AI, the fraction of companies that say that they've really gotten a benefit from it, the numbers are incredibly small. You know, we call it the between times because we can see the potential of the technology, but it hasn't come to fruition yet. And that era, these between times, is something we've seen over and over again with these transformative technologies. It happened with electricity, it happened with computing, and we believe now it's happening with AI. I just want to focus on the electricity example for a second because it's one that does come up repeatedly in the book. This is the idea that electricity was an available technology essentially in the 1880s, and yet it did not get adopted you know, in a widespread way until like the 1920s. So it took decades for it to be used the way it could be and that we might be in a similar kind of in-between period now where AI is there, you know, its adoption is available for companies and organizations that want to try it, but it's going to take some time to get from here to a world where it's being used everywhere the way electricity eventually was used everywhere. And that's that's the essential uh, analogy, That right? is the essential analogy, and that's the, the core thesis of, of our book, which is when you look at the 1880s in electricity... You had electric lights, electric motors. It was very clear that this was going to be a big deal. But what happened at first when, say, companies were adopting electricity, they'd take out their candles and put in electric lights in the exact same place, or they'd take out their steam engine from the center of the factory and put an electric motor in the exact same place. And that these, these point solutions where you take out the old technology, put in the new, but don't mess with your workflow, the upside is necessarily limited. The best you could do with electric lights replacing candles is save on wax, effectively, and you know, maybe reduce fires, but electricity was pretty dangerous back then, too. The best you can do with an electric motor in a factory, if all you're doing is replacing the steam engine, is save on your energy costs. Your energy costs are only a small percentage of your overall cost of running the factory. And so the upside of doing all this work to rewire a factory and get the electricity coming into it was necessarily limited by the fact that all we were doing is doing the same thing, but a little bit better. What happened? Right. Yeah. Which is nice. It's helpful, yeah. but it's not a transformative new world. It's not something that would require basically implementing a totally new system and throwing out the old systems, which is hard to do. It's really hard to do. But if all you're doing is making your old world a little bit better, it might not be worth the, the millions or in the case of AI, in some context, the billions of dollars necessary to make these changes happen. Where Yeah, that makes sense. What happened with electricity is in the early 1900s, people discovered that electricity meant a different kind of factory, for example, which is the quintessential 20th century factory that you might imagine with inputs coming in one end and outputs coming out the other with an assembly line factory workflow. That wasn't possible with a steam engine because what you did is you located all your machines as close as possible to the steam engine and the workflow of the factory was essentially determined by the power source. But once you realized that electricity wasn't just cheap power, but it was distributed power, right? Electricity allowed you to, to decouple the power source from the location of the machines. You could build an entirely new kind of factory that could make much more complicated things much faster, much more efficiently, and much cheaper. And that's what led us to Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company and the modern, or at least the 20th century factory. I want to give a kind of modern example of how that could work. Um, and it comes from the unexpected source of greenhouses, yeah. right? So this was an example in your book. So a greenhouse is, of course, you know, a structure that lets you grow plants and lets you control the temperature, the weather, and essentially the environment in which those plants are grown, but which also tend to be infiltrated by pests. And AI was at first used for one of those just specific solutions, right? Yeah. You know, to try to figure out, well, what are the chances that this particular greenhouse will be infiltrated by pests? When, how much pesticide should you use? That kind of thing. But that actually the system level solution would be to just design a whole different kind of greenhouse, right? Absolutely. Right. So what, what does AI allow you to do in a greenhouse? It allows you to predict where the pests are. Okay. Uh, that turns out to be really useful if you look at sort of a typical 
you know, for professional farmers, the, the handbooks or the textbooks that they use to try to think through and build greenhouses, about a third of those books is all about pests. Pests are on the top of mind of you know, agriculture generally and greenhouses in particular. And pests constrain the mm -hmm. kind of greenhouse you can build. It can only be so big. It can only be so friendly to various kinds of pests in terms of the temperature and the humidity, et cetera. Once you have excellent predictions about where the pests are or where they might grow, then you can build a different kind of greenhouse. You can build them much bigger. You can grow different kinds of plants, ones that might be less pest resistant. You can reimagine the, the architecture of the way you grow things because this constraint, this overwhelming constraint on, oh, we have to protect everything we have against pests goes away. I want to turn to something in the book that's really important for understanding how AI is going to change how we work and, and maybe even how we think in the future. But since you and I have so much ground to cover here, I am just going to describe the whole concept to our listeners and then ask you to elaborate. So here it is. The concept is about how so many of us as people, but also so many of the companies we work for, use these blunt rules to determine how to act instead of using our discretion to make a decision each time a situation might require it, or instead of adapting to a particular situation. And the reason we use those rules is because there's a lot of uncertainty. There's an absence of information. And everything I just said is kind of abstract, so let me just give my favorite example from the book to explain it a little bit more. Each time we have to go to the airport to catch a flight, we use a rule of leaving for the airport like two hours before the flight. So we don't usually decide, well, for my Tuesday flight to Tampa, I'll leave 50 minutes before the flight takes off. But then for my Saturday flight to Seattle, I'll leave an hour and a half before the flight takes off. And the reason we use these rules is because there's a lot of uncertainty. There's that absence of information. We don't know, for example, how long it'll take to get through security. We don't know how long it'll take to check in our bags, to walk to the gate, or even how much traffic there might be on the way to the airport. So we use a rule leave two hours early, and I'll always get to my flight on time. And so consequently, what happens is that we end up spending a lot of time in airports and in the terminal, and then airports end up catering to that by making these terminals nicer and nicer. So they have shiny stores and restaurants and all these lounges now, because airports know that if all that time that people spend in terminals is unpleasant, then people will just fly less. They'll travel less and they'll visit airports less. But now consider where AI helps us to get that information to make a different decision each time we go to the airport. So maybe an AI can take data from the airport itself about the security lines and how long it takes to check a bag, or maybe it'll get real-time data about traffic and so on. And it takes all that data and then it can spit out an exact and an accurate amount of time it will take to get to the airport each time you go to fly. So that amount of time is going to be different each time you fly. And that'll let you spend as little time as possible in the terminal before you board the flight. And if we had that, then we would not have to spend all that time in terminals. We wouldn't really end up having to spend any time in terminals. And all those stores and coffee shops and restaurants and lounges would be out of business. So the world would change. And so that is just one example of rules versus decision making. Uh, but I'd love it if you could just take us through some others and maybe explain why this idea of AI replacing rules and helping us make decisions each time a situation arises might end up being such a big deal for companies and for people. So, yeah, rules are everywhere and they reduce the, the burden of having to make decisions on many of us. But that's not actually all they do. Rules do something else that's really important, which is they allow us to anticipate what everybody else is going to do. And so you know, if I have an AI that gives me a great prediction about how long it's going to take to get to the airport and through security, and I start using it, that's useful. But if the airline doesn't really coordinate with me, and I don't know when my, my plane's really going to take off because of all the delays ex that might happen, etc., then it's not even that useful for me to use it. And so what rules do is they allow people to anticipate what everybody else is going to do in the company. So for example, think about the recommendation system. So you go to Amazon or somewhere else, it's going to recommend to you something that you might want to buy. In the old like days- Like an ad, like targeted ads as they're sometimes called, right? Targeted ads, but this is more uh, when you show up at the main page, it says, oh, you know, 
last time you bought the second book of the Lord of the Rings, I think this time you're going to buy the third book of the Lord of the Rings. Okay, so like a, mm -hmm. a personalized prediction that's not mm -hmm. necessarily being advertised, but it's a, a recommendation engine. Recommendation engines actually go back a really long way. There was, in the 1920s, you might have had a book of the month club where every month you would have been, you would have received a book in the mail. Why did that work? Because everybody would effectively receive the bestseller. And since everybody gets the same recommendation, it's easy enough, and they could hold it in inventory. In the 1970s, we had record clubs, Columbia House Records and others, where you'd, same kind of idea, you'd agree to get the same record, same album, every month. Why did that work? Because there was, if you liked rock music, there was everybody, you know, there was one number one album, and that's what they sent you. If you liked pop music, there was one number one album, and that's what they sent you. I guess that was more of the 80s. And uh, it was anticipatable, and they could deal with it with their inventories. Fast forward to the early 2000s. In principle, now we could have much better predictions about what people are going to want. And we could recommend not just the number one album for everybody or the number one book for everybody, but figure out, well, based on what you bought in the past and your friends and the people around you, here's what we think we should really recommend to you. At first, as they were doing that, it failed. And it failed because they have to not just recommend to you what you want, but it has to be something that they can hold in inventory and ship to you quickly. And if the decisions on inventory and shipping aren't integrated with the decisions on the recommendation, then having an AI in the recommendation engine on, so, hey, we think you're really going to like this obscure book, uh, but you're going to have to wait six months to get it. That's not useful. And so rules are useful. Doing the same thing every time is useful because it allows you to, it allows everybody in the company to have a good guess about what everybody else is doing. And once you have an AI that's going to break rules, it'll allow you to make different decisions at different times. To you, we'll recommend this product, and to someone else, we'll recommend that product. That requires a different kind of company because we need to now coordinate the shipping and, in and inventory decisions uh, with the recommendations. Yeah, I like that example. And in the book, you write that radio is about rules, whereas streaming is about predictions and yeah. decisions for what somebody's going to like. So if you're on the radio, you'll hear the song that the radio station thinks the most number of people are going to want to hear. Whereas if you're using one of these streaming services, it's going to give you some ideas for songs that you might like based on what you've listened to in the past. And something similar goes for education. You write that having a lot of rules leads to this very conformist approach that we have to educating, which has been necessary in the past, you know, for safety reasons, for effectiveness. We need to educate whole batches of people at a time. So schools need to have those rules in place so that everybody knows what all the kids are learning at the same time. But the AI actually has the potential to sort of unstick that system that's being held together by rules and to offer something possibly better. That's right. If we knew what every individual kid needed to learn next in order to thrive the most, then in principle, we could target the next step of everybody's education to them in particular. And AI, there's reasons to think prediction technology, the reason to think AI will let us get there uh, in the sense that we have lots and lots of students. We know what's worked for them in the past. We can collect information about it and predict for, hey, a new student comes along who looks like some students we've seen in the past. What's the best way to get them to the next step to achieve their goals? That's at a high level. The technology doesn't seem to be the barrier there. The barrier is we have an existing education system that isn't designed to deal with that level of flexibility. And so the, it's a coordination problem. It is 100 percent right? a coordination problem. It's how do we get all the people in the fifth grade to even though in sort of emotional maturity, they might need to be together in a classroom. How do we still have them learn different things at different times according to their own needs? Yeah. How do we ensure that teachers have the expertise to manage such a diverse class of diverse learning needs? We haven't figured out what that new system looks like. We can imagine the AI piece, and I think eventually we'll get to the big picture piece, but exactly what those changes are required. What does it mean to be a teacher if the AI is predicting what the next learning piece for each individual student uh, looks like? 
does the the skill set does teacher education need to change do we have we need a totally new system this totally is why it's hard yeah. to go from the world we have now to the one that we might just about be able to imagine if we were to use ai you know if you know if ai were to be adopted on mass there's a lot of barriers to getting from here to there because you need to upend the system and that doesn't happen easily it doesn't happen easily and it's risky so some people, you know, think back to when they electrified factories. Some people might have bet on not the assembly line kind of factory what electricity did, but some other new kind of factory, and it might not have worked. And mm-hmm. so there's inventing new systems from scratch is both, you know, it's expensive, uh, but it's also risky. And a lot of people don't have, for good reason, may not have the appetite for that risk. So we can see what the other side looks like, you know, but crossing that barrier is challenging. I want to turn now to asking about the labor market and AI. And first, let me just lay out for our listeners how this conversation typically goes, right? When it comes to AI and the potential to do work that is currently being done by humans. What's thought to be possibly different about AI is that it might essentially automate away either tasks or whole jobs that are not routine and that previously were thought to be possible only when done by the human mind, by the human brain. So earlier waves of automation, you know, the deindustrialization of the workforce, factory jobs, automated away jobs that were routine. These were middle-class, middle-income jobs, but that were routine. And so building the machines, the robots to automate them away essentially led to some tough times for a lot of people and the towns they lived in who did those factory jobs. Whereas now the thinking on AI is that it might automate away the kind of non-routine jobs that are not middle-income jobs. They're actually high-income jobs in addition to some low-income jobs. So it's like on either side of that spectrum of what was being automated away before. And that this might have all kinds of different ramifications for society and that that is what's being debated. And then the question of whether or not it might lead to just new kinds of jobs that we haven't been able to imagine to this point. You and your co-authors take or seem to take a different approach to this question. And in particular, you find that whenever a company is looking at different kinds of AI to use, so let's say an entrepreneur has a new kind of AI and goes to a company and says, hey, here's this AI that you should consider using, that companies are not so receptive when it's all about automating away the work. They are more receptive when it's about making their product better. Can you kind of just describe your findings and why that's so meaningful for this debate that we're having about the future labor force and AI? Absolutely. So here's what's easy. What's easy is to look at your existing workflow in a company, like all the things that you do, identify which of those things could be done by a machine, whether by automating or especially if they're prediction tasks, taking out the human and dropping in a machine and not messing with your workflow at all. So it's easy to imagine that. It's easy to see what the payoffs might be. But when you do the calculations, you might realize the payoffs are pretty low. Okay, That's uh, thinking through the various tasks and taking out humans, dropping a machine. So it's easy to imagine. What's hard to imagine is to say, well, now that we have great predictions, we can serve our customers in a different way. We can create a different kind of product or a different kind of service that generates real value and allows us to fulfill our mission or transform our industry. That's where the big opportunity is, but it's also harder. And so the conversation around AI ends up focusing on that easy part. We worry about the machines just replacing humans, and sometimes they do. And I don't want to I don't want to downplay that, but for the most part they don't. For the most part that worry has been misplaced because ultimately it's really hard to replace a human fully in a job. And that means that these startups or AI companies that are trying to look at others' workflows and trying to replace humans don't really get that much traction because it's just not worth it. Just like it wasn't worth it to take out your steam engine, drop in an electric motor in the exact same place, but keep your overall workflow the same in order to save a little bit on electricity. It's not worth it to take out a human process in many cases, drop in a machine and not change the workflow at all. What is worth it, where we do see transformative potential, is when you can use AI to create value in a new way. Yeah. I was trying to think of an example of how that logic would apply to my own job. 
and I, I want to take you through what I arrived at because I think that might make it easier to talk about this uh, in less abstract terms again. So I'm an economics podcaster. And let's say that I were to break up the tasks of my job into two different tasks. So task one is economic analysis, so understanding and contextualizing the economy or looking for interesting insights about the economy or at the very least absorbing the insights of others that I find compelling. And then let's say that task number two is talking about the economy in front of a mic. So being a good interviewer, being clear, using good examples and so on. Well, if an AI comes along that's just amazing at the economic analysis task, at that part of the job, then I might reasonably see that as a threat. A machine can now do half my job. But somebody does still have to do the talking part of the job, so it wouldn't make sense necessarily for me to lose my whole job. And so the question then becomes, will it make me better at my job? Will this new AI that can now do half my job better than I can, actually make me better at the remaining part of my job? And if so, well, then that might end up also being better for my employer, if I had one, uh, for me and, of course, for podcast listeners. Is that an example that roughly tracks with what you're saying? Okay, that's an example that, it is an example that tracks. I think there is a, a key nuance to it, which is, Yes, what the AI might do is it allow you to you know, decouple the different parts of your job. So you described it as analysis and talking. Talking. <laughs> uh, the AI might be, you know, if the machine is good at one hey, piece of that. Some people are bad at talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, what you have is a distinctive skill, which is that you're good at talking and good at economic analysis. And so the worry for you in particular is if we now have AIs who are really good at economic analysis, are you the best person in the world to uh, do the talking part? Right. There and might so be people who suck at economic analysis, but they're way better talkers. And so they slot in and take my place. Exactly. And so that's a that's a worry for people who make a, a very good living through the combination of their skills. But it's an op also an opportunity to the extent that the economic analysis was a barrier to many people being able to uh, contribute to the economic to the economy overall or to society because of their skills in communication. Well, now this is an opportunity to upskill a large percentage of the population. And we have lots of examples of where technological change hurts a small number of people. And it really does. We should worry about that. But in the process, it upskills many, many more. And so I'm quite optimistic about AI, as distinct from the previous generation of information technology, as you described, in factories that hollowed out many sort of middle-class jobs in factory towns. I'm more optimistic about AI because I think a lot of what it's doing or what it has potential to do is give millions of people the skills that only thousands have today. There's a quote in the book that I want to read because I think it has some profound consequences for how we think about AI, and it's actually a quasi-philosophical point, but I think an important one. So here's the quote. While AI cannot hand a decision to a machine, it can change which human is making the decision. Machines don't have power, but when deployed, they can change who does, unquote. This is interesting for a few different reasons, but to me, it just kind of shows that humans are at least still in control of what goes into AIs, right? Like they have to be programmed by humans and then what they do with the decisions of AIs. And you can, by the way, automate the decisions that are made based on what the AI finds. But that also is a deliberate decision made by a human. And so I guess to me what this indicates is that the people who actually understand AIs, the people who know how to use AIs to complement what they already do, are the ones who are going to ascend in the workforce of the future. And the people who don't, whether they're threatened by AIs or are resistant to using them or th think it's all a bunch of nonsense, and by the way, there's still a lot of people who think that, are the ones who are essentially risking their own livelihoods or their own positions by not trying to figure them out. But I'm, I'm just curious to hear you elaborate more on that quote and, and its ramifications. Right. Machines don't make decisions. Only humans make decisions. And when we start thinking that machines are making decisions, that's a way for the people responsible 
to abdicate and abandon that responsibility. And it allows us to make all sorts of mistakes and it allows us to allow things to go wrong. What do I mean by that? There was a story a few years ago, it wasn't quite true, that Amazon was using an AI to fire their workers in warehouses, okay? Amazon wasn't doing this, but the idea of scoring workers and then you know, those workers like you know, automatically day, firing them based automatically on the firing. score. So the you idea mean. is right. every day, every worker in the warehouse gets a score. And if your score for the day falls below 600, you'd get an email at the end of the day that said, okay, you're fired. That's how the press was reporting on it. It was a long way away from what was happening. But let's imagine even that was what was happening. So it felt like a fully automated system to identify who got to keep their job. In the old days, there was a, or you know, there would have been a human manager at the warehouse who made those kinds of decisions about who got to keep their job and who didn't. Okay. What the AI is doing in that example, it's taking the power away from that human manager on the ground in the warehouse and giving it not to the machine, not, not to the machine, but to somebody at headquarters who decided what does it mean to have a score what goes into that score about what success looks like? What's the threshold? Should it be that you get a score of 600 and you get the fired email or 700 or 800? And how does that change over time? So it's changing the decision power from the human on the ground, the human manager on the ground in the warehouse to somebody at headquarters. And it's massively expanding the control, massively expanding the power in this context of what that manager at headquarters can do and who's livelihoods that manager or that team uh, has control over. So it's not that, again, the machine's not deciding here. It is a change in the human decision from the manager at the warehouse on the ground at the moment, day by day, to somebody at headquarters who gets to make a decision that has an impact, not just at that moment, but going forward over time out of over all the warehouse workers in the company. I want to ask about AI becoming something that's known in the social sciences as an invention in the method of invention. It has its own acronym, IMI. And basically, an invention in the method of invention is not just something new, a new invention. It's something that offers a whole new way of doing things that can then lead to further inventions later on, further innovations. So an example that you give in the book is that the microscope led to the germ theory of disease, and then the germ theory of disease was used as the basis for all these new inventions that we now have in modern medicine. Can you just say a little bit more about what it could mean for society and for the economy and for how we live if AI does in fact become an invention in the method of invention? So I actually think maybe more than any other area, this is where it's already happening. If you look at where AI has been adopted so far, where the machine learning tools, the prediction tools have been adopted, it is very, very high in research labs and people whose job is to innovate, to invent. And so what we're starting to see as a consequence of that are new systems of discovery. We're not doing that at scale yet, but we can maybe more than in any other area of the economy, we've seen a large percentage of the workers in the, in the innovation space actually already adopt. And they're already building some new systems. So for example, we have AlphaFold, which is a technology for helping us understand proteins. And it turns out understanding proteins is fundamental to modern medicine and biotechnology. Proteins are the building blocks of life. And if we can understand proteins better, we can develop much better treatments, much better medicines, much better understanding of how the body works. And so the AlphaFold allows us to understand proteins at a level that we just couldn't understand it before, to the point where many leading biomedical scientists are saying this is transformational and it's going to change medicine completely. There's reasons to be very optimistic about the technology. We're a long way away from it changing medicine completely because we have to sort of reimagine and rethink those new systems, but we can see something. It's an example of a prediction that's many, many times better than what we had before in our old system. And it's starting to transform the, uh, the medical industry. I'm glad you brought up the example of AlphaFold, by the way, because I flagged something that you wrote in the book about it. 
And here's what you write. Labs that specialized in determining protein structures no longer serve much purpose. The future requires more labs that convert known protein structures into useful treatments, unquote. But you can also imagine if you worked in one of those labs that did specialize in determining protein structures, well, God, your whole life you've been told you're doing this super important thing because you were, by the way. And now along comes this technology that just does it way better. And you're going to have to retrain after having this super important high status job your whole life. And you're going to have to figure out like what the path forward looks like. That requires a whole new system. But it also means that there's going to be some entrenched resistance to it. There's going to be people who say, well, AlphaFold just isn't good enough or you need, you know, you need yeah. specialists to supervise the process of figuring it out. It needs to be tested. We need to take more time. You can understand why it's so hard by looking at that example to overturn existing systems and introduce something totally new, a blank slate to capitalize on this technology. Absolutely. This is this is a, you know, an excellent example of the opportunity and the challenge. The opportunity is, well, if we no longer have this bottleneck of understanding the proteins, we can do so much more at the medical side of things, like really in terms of developing treatments and, and understanding the, the way to, to make human life better. But there's people who currently make a living on, on that place that's a bottleneck, and they're going to resist. They're going to resist in all sorts of ways. They're going to resist uh, in terms of what their organizations do. They're going to insist to the government that the thing they do is fundamental and maybe we shouldn't trust the machines as much. And so there's going to be all these barriers. It, it's a manifestation of the same phenomenon, which is there are when we have a prediction technology that replaces a handful of specialists, it creates opportunity for everybody else, but it presents a real threat, a meaningful threat to those specialists. And they're going to need to one option is for them to resist and maybe that'll work. Uh, long enough for them to keep their jobs for their working lives. But in the long run, it's more about adaptation. And adaptation is scary, and, and people people genuinely do get hurt by it. Yeah. The the other example in the healthcare field, because you, you do focus a lot of your book on healthcare, is that of radiologists and how AIs are getting better and better at doing image reading. And there's a lot of different job functions that radiologists do, right? It's not just image reading. But if machines do the image reading part of the radiologist's job better than human radiologists do, then it's possible that the other parts of the radiologist's job can be done by other people with different kinds of training, by other kinds of doctors maybe, or by nurses or even social workers, that kind of thing. And so you can see why if I'm a radiologist, number one, I'm like a really smart person who's been told I'm really smart my whole life. I'm doing this really important job. I'm helping to save lives. I have hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical student debt or whatever, right? Like I would definitely be threatened by something that comes along and says, no, the crucial part of your job, the thing you specialize in is now being done better by this new technology. So I am incentivized. Maybe I'm not doing it consciously, but I'm incentivized to slow down the transition, or at least to say, well, I'm the only one qualified to work alongside these machines. And maybe they have a point. They might be right about that. But it really introduces this very complex set of issues for radiologists and for radiology as a profession. Absolutely. There's, you know, if you break down the workflow of a radiologist, uh, only a couple of the tasks are things that machines can do. But those are, for many radiologists, the tasks they spent you know, their many years of specialty training focused on. And so we can see the opportunity for AI and radiology because there are reasons to expect in the short term, even, that machines will do better at identifying anomalies and images, which is what a lot of what the role of the radiologist is at scale, faster, better than maybe not every radiologist, but better than, say, the median the you know, most radiologists. Now, there's a few ways this can go. Version number one is for regulatory or other reasons the radiologists manage to insist that their workflow should never change. I don't think that's where it's going to land, but that's, that's always possible. Option number two 
which is already happening, is the training that happens in the job of the radiologist changes. And so the diagnostic role of the radiologist, where they're just looking at a scan and identifying what's going on, is going to decrease. And other things that radiologists do, particularly what we call what's called interventional radiology, where they use the reading of the scan to, to perform some kind of you know, action on the patient, a surgery, for example, uh, those are becoming increasingly important. So we still have radiologists, still kind of people with the same skill set, uh, but they're doing less and less of the traditional image recognition and more and more other things that are specialized skills. And the third thing that, uh, that is not yet happening, but there's reasons to expect it will, it'll take time though, is that the people doing radiology will no longer be radiologists. So yes, what do I mean by that? Yes, some people who are currently radiologists whose job was reading scans, that aspect of their job is going to go away. And instead, it's going to upskill thousands of other medical professionals who didn't have that expertise. Say you're a general practitioner, doctor, or nurses, or even other types of medical professionals. They'll be able to interpret the information in a scan and help a patient. And I think like this insight of... One of the things that AI does in medicine is it does the core thing that gives doctors their special place at the center of the medical system, as it, which is diagnosis. If AIs are doing diagnosis, the skills of the doctor are going to change. And maybe you don't need 10 years of school after, after high school to become uh, the person who guides a patient through the medical system. Maybe that's actually something that we could develop a you know, a four-year degree for, or even a two-year degree for, where you learn to help patients uh, manage the stress of their health challenges working with a machine that does the diagnosis part itself. That's a long way off, to be clear. Like, that's not happening yet. But it's a, it's a way to sort of reimagine what a healthcare system could look like once we have machine diagnosis at scale. If AI and its widespread adoption requires the overturning of existing systems and the introduction of new systems, does that mean that the world in the future is going to be a more volatile place because of AI? A one-word answer is yes. Uh, it means the world <laughs> is a you know, more volatile place. That's not a... you know We economists talk about the long run a lot. It's not a statement about the long run. In the long run, we'll have new systems, and the new systems will be you know will work. But it is a statement. It's not necessarily getting... a bad thing that the world's yeah. more volatile, right? More dynamic no. is another word you could use for it. Yeah, it's good for. In this case, I think it means it's going to be good for some, but not so good for others. And for many of the technologies, there's reason to be optimistic that it's going to be good for more people than it's bad for. The people toward the top of the income distribution might be even hurt more than the people in the middle of it. So there's you know, that that might be not the people at the very top. That's different, but uh, the people who are toward the top. Um, so there's reasons to be optimistic about that, but it's going to, but, but volatile in this case, I really think means good for some and bad for others. And Mm -hmm. we, we run an, an annual economics of artificial intelligence conference, like an academic conference. And at the very first conference, we were talking about these challenges and sort of the future of work and, you know, short-term disruption, even though the long run is going to be great. And there was this economist, a man named Manuel Trachtenberg, who, uh, after being an economist, became a politician. And he said something that I think was, you know, that stuck with me ever since, which is if in the short run there's a revolution, the long run doesn't matter. And so we economists, we like to think about the long run uh, because those that's when the system all settles and we have the new system and it's great. But thinking through that transition period is we should not ignore the volatility and disruption and pretend that it doesn't matter. It really does. And managing not just toward the long run great new system, but the shorter term, you call the volatility, volatility being good for some, that's easy to manage in some sense, but the volatility being bad for others, we need to think very carefully about that in order to manage the downside, in order to experience the upside. When we started our chat, we introduced the analogy to electricity and how in the 1880s, the technology was there But it wasn't until roughly the 1920s that a lot of organizations and companies and people started adopting it more widely. 
And I found myself wondering, as I read your book, whether you thought we were closer to the 1880s or the 1920s. And then you answered it towards the end by saying you do think we're closer to the 1880s. But what it brought to mind was that maybe this will all happen a lot faster now. I mean, by its very nature, AI works better and faster the more it gets used. And so it can kind of take on perhaps even an exponential trend where it really takes off. And I thought of a few different things. One is that this might happen very, very quickly. It won't take 40 years. The second, though, is that we really have no idea how all of these new systems will interact with each other. Because if the nature of AI is to take new information and to keep also evolving so that it can take the previous outcomes of earlier AIs, right? Well, all these new systems are going to just be generating new information that can be used for new decisions, which in some other system is then going to... I don't even know what I'm really saying right now, but if all of the economy starts using this stuff at the same time, it seems like it'll all just kind of get away from our ability to even understand it, right? So in terms of time, how long it takes to be adopted, and our ability to sort of keep track of just what the hell's going on, uh, what do you think? So I think when we this process of identifying what a well-designed, effective AI system looks like will involve ensuring that we continue to collect the right kind of data so that the systems don't all sort of get away from us. I think like the challenge you set up in terms of thinking about the systems getting away, you know, AI is getting away from us, is a statement about the kind of system innovation that we need as opposed to a statement about what will happen once we have it. So now... Will it take 40 years or not? I do think we're in the 1880s or 1890s. We're still in the between times. We're a long way away from, in most contexts, seeing new AI-based systems uh, transform industry. There's reasons to actually think it's going to be 40 years or more because there's so many sources of resistance and the regulatory power and the ability to control what happens within society is just in many ways much bigger than it was 100 or more years ago from a government and, and big corporation point of view. Here's the reasons to be optimistic. Reason to be optimistic, number one, is we know a lot more about the economics of technical change. We understand the barriers to technology in a way that we didn't before. And so we can use that knowledge in order to accelerate these changes. We understand uh, that we need system level change. We didn't understand that 40 years ago. That economic literature and management literature was only being formed about you know, 20, 25 years ago. But now we have a much deeper understanding of it. And so there's reasons to be optimistic. The other reason to be optimistic is what you alluded to there, which was there are reasons for particular companies and organizations and people to want to be first, which is that because this is a technology that gets better as it's used more and more because it learns from data, there's reasons for people developing AI products to want to get their products out first. So, you know, in terms of, you know, a diagnostic AI, an AI for medicine, do you want to be diagnosed by the second best diagnostic AI? No, you want to be diagnosed by the best one. And since software is, you know, is essentially free to replicate, once you have a great diagnostic AI out there that's diagnosing more and more people and learning each time whether it was right and improving, it's going to be very hard for anybody else to compete. Self-driving cars. Like once, you know, do you want to be in the safest self-driving car? Or do you want to be in the second safest? Do you want to be in the safest? And so, and again, because it's software, once it's deployed, it'll get better and better and better faster than everybody else. And so there's reasons to race and want to be first. And so another reason to think this won't take 40 years is as entrepreneurs effectively, whether you know in big organizations or outside, they're gonna want to be first. They're going to want to be ahead of everybody else. And there's going to be this racing to get out and to be the first to be good enough to deploy safely and at scale. And that racing is a reason to be optimistic this won't take another 40 years. I was reading a lot about this topic uh, ahead of our interview. And one of the pieces I came across was by a policy analyst whose work I really like named Sam Hammond at the, the Scannon Center. And he was writing about all the different ways that our world could be about to get kind of weird because of AI within the next couple of decades. You know, he wasn't saying it was going to happen overnight, but that we're maybe not really prepared 
for all the different things that might change. And so he, he gave a list of examples of things that might be different. And you'll, you'll see how lively the prose is here. And I just I want to read it for our listeners. And then I want to get your thoughts on whether or not you find this to be a kind of plausible trajectory of what might happen in the next couple of decades. So here's what Sam writes. You'll be able to listen in on a conversation in an apartment across the street using the sound vibrations off a chip bag. You'll be able to replace your face and voice with those of someone else in real time, allowing anyone to socially engineer their way into anything. Bots will slide into your DMs and have long, engaging conversations with you until it senses the best moment to send its phishing link. Games like chess and poker will have to be played naked and in the presence of currently illegal RF signal blockers to guarantee no one's cheating. Relationships will fall apart when the AI lets you know via micro expressions that he didn't really mean it when he said he loved you. Copyright will be as obsolete as sodomy law as thousands of new Taylor Swift albums come into being with a single click. Public comments on new regulations will overflow with millions of cogent and entirely unique submissions that the regulator must, by law, individually read and respond to. Death by kamikaze drone will surpass mass shootings as the best way to enact a lurid revenge. The courts, meanwhile, will be flooded with lawsuits because who needs to pay attorney fees when your phone can file an airtight motion for you? And that's the end of the quote. Uh, so some of this, I think we would register as sort of dystopian and, you know, th- it didn't it didn't include all of the good things that, that you and I have just talked about. But I guess like in general, as a way that our world might soon change in some ways that we really are not prepared for. Does that strike you as largely a plausible way that so we're headed? I view that list as a to do list. That's the list. That's a partial list of the new kinds of systems that need to be built in order for the technology to be used and used effectively at scale. So that is a list of ways you can attack, use AI to attack systems as they exist in 2022. But those aren't going to be the systems that evolve along with the attackers. Like, although that list of things that could go wrong, they could go wrong because people use the technology ultimately for harm. But the good guys are innovating too. And what I meant was when I when I hear that list of things that might go wrong, I don't think that's a list of things that will go wrong. I think that's a list of things that we need to assign and identify very smart people who want to address and figure out how to fix those challenges so that people will adopt the machines in the first place because they know on the other side those challenges will be overcome. So like that's a I view that as an innovators to do list, if that makes sense. Yep, it does. Last yeah. question. We've focused, of course, on your book, which is itself looking at all the different ways that organizations, you know, companies, businesses, perhaps policymakers can do things differently in the future because of AI, you know, new systems. We haven't really talked a lot about what the introduction of AI into the world might teach us about what it means to be human or might change our understanding of what it means to be human. We haven't talked about, for example, the lessons of AI for creativity. The idea that when you look at something like GPT-3 or what comes next, or you look at something like Dolly or the ability of AI to create a kind of art on demand by recombining earlier styles, or maybe even someday coming up with totally original styles, what does that mean about the nature of creativity and about the nature of what it means to be a human being, how we interact with each other, how we inspire each other? This is a very broad question, but I'm just kind of curious to know, given that you look at this stuff every single day, what are some of the kind of insights that we should take away from it about what it is to be a person? I think if you ask somebody in the 1920s in the scientific establishment what was unique about humans, many of them would have said the ability to do complex mathematics, arithmetic. But today we know that machines, for the most part, are better at doing complex arithmetic than we humans, and we still, you know, there's still meaning in our lives, and we still think there's something special about humans. So I, I don't know what that thing is, or those set of things that are distinct and unique about human intelligence relative to other intelligences. But I'm confident that as machine intelligences evolve, they'll be, you know, we'll discover new things that we can do 
and we'll be able to focus more on the remaining tools and uh, skills and abilities and pleasures that we have as humans. Do you have a favorite AI? Bonus question. <laughs> yeah, I translation AI just seems amazing to me. I've never been very good with languages and the idea that you almost have a babblefish from the book The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where you can, you know, have a technology and that you stick in your ear and potentially have a real-time conversation with somebody who's speaking a different language, that seems extraordinary. Uh, even if it's not real-time, just the ability to translate text from one language to another, I think it's going to it's incredibly exciting. And that said, when I saw ChatGPT you know, come out last month, uh, that's been pretty amazing too, that technology, the text technology that we talked about earlier. Ivy Goldfarb, thanks so much for this really wonderful, enlightening, and to me, creative and inspiring chat. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show for this week. I read through a lot of stuff in preparation for today's episode. So if you go to our show notes at bizarreaudio.com, you will find links there to all those stories and articles and research and other books that I read, in addition, of course, to Avi's book, Power and Prediction, which is highly, highly recommended. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice, and if you like today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next time. Marketers and business owners, you've been pining after a certain someone. Your job's on the line. You're desperate for them to like you back. Here's a word of advice from me. Talking is hot. Just you and them, finally alone, like us two right now. Maybe under the duvet, headphones on, one-on-one. -on -one. Podcast advertising is proven to be one of the best ways to catch their attention. So surprise them while they're tuned in, while the moment's right. Say a line or two that really gets them going. Next time, if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love, experiment with something new, just focus on your voice. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcast shows with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started.